This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. I really enjoy producing this podcast, and I love it when I get emails from you. I got an email recently that mentioned the Toasted Sister team, and I think they were thinking that a few people work on this podcast. Well, I am the whole team. I produce, record, and edit these episodes together, and Toasted Sister is a project that I am proud of and I feel pretty protective of because it is native media. And some of you have asked how you can support Toasted Sister, and there are a couple of ways you can do this. First, please consider a five-star rating or maybe write a little review about Toasted Sister on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out about this show. Also, I have Toasted Sister Coffee Cups for sale on the website. And finally, you can contribute a simple donation. Just click the donate button on the website. That's ToastedSisterPodcast.com. And I promise you, I won't be using this money to go out to eat. It will go towards website and audio hosting and elevating indigenous voices, which is something we could all use more of. I have a very special episode for you, and it is totally native food related and not just my fascination with bats and the fact that I had all this audio laying around. Bats are important to our food systems. They are pollinators and pest controllers, and their jobs as such are vital to many of the wild indigenous plants and ingredients that are important to native food culture. So in this episode, I talk to biologists and tribal biologists about bats in the Southwest and how tribes, state and federal entities are working together to spread cultural and scientific knowledge about bats. You'll hear from a real bat and from my bat knitting adventure on the Santa Ana Pueblo Reservation. Last year, I went to the Southwest Native American Workshop on Bats here in Albuquerque, and the purpose of this workshop was to share information on bats in the Southwest with an emphasis on white-nose syndrome. And if you're not familiar with white-nose syndrome, it's caused by a fungus that makes hibernating bats act abnormally, and they end up burning up their energy and fat reserves they need for the winter. Millions of bats have died since white-nose syndrome first appeared around 2006 in New York, and it continues to spread across the eastern side of the country, and it appeared recently in Oklahoma. And that's according to the white-nose syndrome response team. It hasn't reached the southwest, but biologists here expect it to eventually reach this area. But what biologists are doing across the country is they are learning more about bats and the disease, and they're trying to figure out how to prevent more bats from being affected. Tribes also have a hand in this fight because they don't want to see white-nose syndrome affect the bats in their lands because they know how important they are to the environment. Lawrence Abeda is a wildlife biologist for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and organizer of the Southwest Native American Workshop on Bats. Part of the reason he wanted to put this workshop together is because he noticed bats weren't talked about as much in his language. Well, the reason I started putting this event together was uh, because I realized that there isn't enough information on bats, you know, on tribal lands. And then when I started planning it, uh, I started finding out, oh, what is the name of our bat in our native language? And, uh, you know, I couldn't remember. And I remember growing up, my grandmother and my mother telling me the names of bats or whatever, because they were always abundant. And so I couldn't remember. Now I had to ask other friends of mine that were biologists, too. They couldn't remember either. And then I started figuring out, well, you know, the name isn't being passed on to youth or even us adults. We don't have the conversation with somebody that's a native speaker in your same language, and we don't talk to them and mention the names. 
you know, I started figuring out, wow, you know, there's a big correlation. We're losing a lot of, we talk about tech and technical, ecological knowledge and the same thing. Uh, we're not passing that on and just the name of a band, it's, once it's lost, it's lost forever, you know. And so uh, that was the reason how I got started on this uh, bat workshop and to get the people involved, the native, you know, lands involved and maybe realize to them that that's happening to our reservation. If it's happening to our, it's happening to every, you know, every nation or every reservation. So, and it's a species that's underlooked or it's not prominent, like elk, deer, and all this are, you know, they have big... Uh, People come out and uh, support them or do stuff because they're big species, they're prominent species, but bats and other species like squirrels or other things, nobody really thinks about them. So I think, uh, you know, that, that's uh, when the emphasis is, should be reversed in the way it is. Um, I also heard um, a little bit about like some of the taboos and so the bad rap that uh, bats have. Um, how, how do you think um, maybe we can start um, addressing that to where, you know, people do feel okay to talk about bats? I know sometimes, you know, you're not supposed to talk about that because they're taboo. Yeah. You know, how do you think we can maybe turn that around? Well, I think education is a big, you know, has a big role in that. Uh, the reason things get really bad reputations because of the unknown. But then that's one of the things with this workshop is... Uh, you know, people are going to learn, they're going to see handling bats, and they're going to see they have a, a role in this earth, just just like any other, and just us, us like humans do, you know, they have their roles, and they play an important role in this uh, world, you know, like bats, they can, you know, control a lot of insects. Without bats, agriculture would be in trouble. Uh, can you tell me how to say bat in your language? Okay, <laughs> and uh, it describes it. Ahla um, is the opaide is the moon and ahla chaide and chaide chai means skin so it kind of describes it so ahla chaide and uh, it means like uh, a moonlight flying uh, skin or you know and that's that's it's kind of described when you interpret it in English it doesn't have the right meaning but it kind of describes it a little bit. But that's that Bahla Bahla Haida. So and, and I had you know, I had to ask and find some elder to tell me about it. So and in, and you know, other species too, I forgot like bumblebee and Koituru, uh, you know, but now I'm starting to remember and I'm starting to write the names down and starting to memorize them again and just uh, get a vocabulary going again. So Dr. Ernie Valdez is a research wildlife biologist for the United States Geological Survey. He spoke about bat biology at the workshop. They uh, eat insects, a lot of agricultural pests. They, they're pollinators. They provide a lot of ser services like seed dispersers in the tropics. Currently, there's a lot of threats to bats uh, in the U.S., especially um, f through a variety of things of wildlife diseases and, and other things like that. So it's important to understand their behavior because uh, they, they fly at night and nobody sees them during the day, so it's hard to find them. And acoustic detecting and, and mist netting is one way of, of uh, getting an idea of what ba where bats are at. Uh, do, do you study just here in New Mexico or where? Well, I study all over the western U.S., but I specialize in, in the southwest. I've done work in Vietnam, and I've done work in the Mariana Islands, 
But my specialty or my focus of area, uh, interest is around in the southwest where I've been here for over 20 years studying bats. And then uh, your relationship with tribes, how are tribes adding to uh, some of the information you're gathering out in the field? or ha And then how is this uh, information maybe a benefit to tribes? Well, I think that was kind of the whole purpose for this workshop. The, the tribal nations of the Southwest um, are at the forefront of one of the most devastating diseases of, called white nose syndrome. And there's little information uh, available, uh, partly because the other wildlife uh, that is given a lot of priority, like bears and elk and deer, uh, they're game species, and, and they're also culturally significant. Whereas bats, they're not as recognized. So there's a lot of um, misconceptions, too, tied with them about them being bad or, and stuff like that, which is not true. Um, so this is an opportunity to provide the tribal nations information on uh, something that's relatively unknown on tribal lands, but can have major impacts on agricultural pests that, they, that the bats control. So this is, a, this is a great opportunity for a lot of the scientists to help contribute and give back to some of the areas that are underrepresented that desperately need this kind of information. Uh, what do you hope comes from the networking that's going on, all the you know uh, different sessions that are going on? What do you hope uh, maybe tribal people take back home with them? When we first started this uh, this workshop this morning, one of the more important things that uh, really was kind of the start for this was the the loss of uh, uh, traditional ecological knowledge, the loss of tribal la uh, language because it's not used and bat is not is a word that hasn't been used by a lot of tribal members and as generations get older there's this loss of of language and kind of like the loss of these bats you know so there's a, they're almost kind of in concert with each other when we're losing bats to wildlife diseases and other threats or the tribal nations are losing their cultural language and so this is a great opportunity for us to document that kind of information, but then also gather information for the, the tribes to, to pursue further research on their own lands. Dr. Mike Medrano, Chief of Research Stewardship and Science for the Guadalupe Mountains National Park, spoke at the workshop about consultation with tribes. If research work on bats is going to be done with tribes or on or near tribal land by outside biologists or researchers, there has to be consultation and understanding. Dr. Medrano gave a few tips on how outsiders can better work with tribes. Uh, first of all, for agencies, be willing and able to dedicate time to develop the relationship. Um, if you pop into a tribe, they don't know you, they don't know what you're after, they have 40 priorities ahead of you, um, it may be difficult to get uh, their time or their ear. So it may take repeat visits, going out and just kind of hanging out and getting to know each other before you get down to business. Uh, if you have other colleagues that have worked with a particular tribe and have had some success, it's worth reaching out to them, uh, give you an idea of, kind of some of the do's and don'ts. Um, but it takes time to develop these relationships. If you're not willing to genuinely invest that time, then you're probably not going to be very successful. Dialogue does not necessarily equate to consultation. Um, Consultation has a very specific legal definition. Uh, it is a government-to-government -government communication. 
So just because you as a biologist are talking to the biologist from a particular tribe does not mean that you are doing consultation. Um, when there are decision makers in the room, whether it is your tribe, whether it is the tribal governor or a superintendent or district ranger or however your hierarchy is set up, when those decision makers are in the room and they're having that discussion and it's government to government, that's when you're having consultation. Um, but that doesn't mean if that every conversation between a federal agency and a tribe has to be formal consultation. Uh, we can develop relationships, we can get to know each other without having that um, level of consultation. Uh, and then that feeds into later when we do have that government to government relationship. A single letter is not consultation. I know people within the federal agencies that uh, will send a letter to the tribes and say, you know, we did our consultation because we sent them a letter. That to me is not consultation and it's not meaningful. It doesn't help. Um, that letter may get put in a pile with 40 other things and you may not hear back within those 30 days. Um, so taking the time to call and say, hey, did you get our letter? Can we send it to somebody else to look at? Um, those kinds of things uh, make a big difference. Do not expect tribes to explain why something is important. Um, so many managers want to go into dialogue with the tribes and the tribes say, we don't want activity in this particular area. And the federal managers want to know why. It's not our business to know why. We should be happy that you told us you don't want activity in a particular area. We should trust your expertise. We should trust your feelings. That doesn't always happen. So as federal agencies, we need to change that mindset that these things may not be explained to us. We need to take it on face value. Each tribe is a sovereign nation. Uh, when I was at Petroglyph National Monument, we were consulting with 23 tribes. Um, and that was our effort. Uh, we sent out letters um, asking to see who was affiliated. We had 23 responses. So we dealt with 23 tribes. We did not assume that one tribe would speak for another. We treated each one like they were a sovereign nation. Uh, do not expect tribes to identify specific points of importance. Uh, kind of goes back to that idea of they may not explain to you why something's important. They may tell you, again, we don't want people in this quarter mile square for whatever reason. And we as federal managers need to be okay with that. Uh, that does put us in a difficult position sometimes when dealing with the public and we have to explain our decision making. But we can fall back, and I've said this in public meetings before, you know, that uh, came through tribal consultation and those consultations are confidential. Uh, but managers have to be willing to step up and actually say that. Be willing to go to the tribes for meetings. Uh, this was a big one uh, for us. We would call a tribe and say, hey, we'd like to have a meeting. Uh, they would tell us, we can't send anybody out for four months because we've got all these other things. And we turned that around and said, okay, when can we come to you? And then it was, okay, we've got, you know, this meeting, council meeting, um, whatever meeting in three weeks, we can put you on the agenda. So it went from three or four months to two or three weeks. Uh, so having that willingness and being able to go and meet the tribes on their own turf um, is important. Uh, it saves them time and you're more likely to get um, some participation. 
Tribes may want to comment on past experiences. Uh, so I've been in consultation meetings where the sins of my predecessors were brought up. And uh, I had to develop a little bit of thick skin, uh, let the tribes say their piece, and then we moved on. Um, you may be dealing with history that you're not aware of um, by your predecessors. Uh, but the tribes don't forget that stuff. And uh, they will they will comment on it and they will um, definitely let you know. Uh, agencies are stewards of the land. Um, I really cringe when I hear federal managers say, we need to welcome the tribes back. And the tribes should not have to be welcomed back. They should have the expectation that they can access their sacred sites without having to be invited or welcomed back. They were there doing these things for a long time before the park was created or that forest or whatever it may be. Um, so the agency should think of themselves as stewards of the land and allow the tribes access um, to these sites. Above all, be respectful. Um, I had one tribe that I was dealing with that they would not let us come anywhere near the elders. And that was because early in the days of the park, there was somebody uh, within the park service that had disrespected one of the elders. And uh, we were kept at a distance from, from the elders because of that. And we respected that. But above all, we need to be respectful, have that dialogue and listen. Nelson Luna agreed and offered more information about how tribes consult their own culture on projects and decision making. Luna is the director of biology for the Pueblo Azuni. This also has a direct link with our language, beliefs, and actual participation. Some tribes still have a lot of information that is passed down and utilized in management of the natural resources on their tribal areas that they still have control over. Some may not, so it varies from tribe to tribe how much information it is they're willing to share. Depending on how much effort each agency personnel puts in to assist the tribe in getting this information, some tribes will be at the end maybe willing to share all or part of that information depending on the final goal and objectives that are going to be met. It, depending on the tribal hierarchy that's in place that has control over the decision makings, that's another or another another tier that has to go go through the realm of decision making in order to release that information. Because there's a religious sector and a governmental section. Uh, and usually if a governmental section okays it, then the religious sector may come back and trump everything and not allow release of that information. So it, it just depends tribe to tribe. It, it's up to you to make that investment to work with each agency. And I think each tribe needs to make that effort also to let the agencies know that they do have an interest in the issue or the subject that's being entertained at that particular moment. Uh, and, and then sometimes, even though the agencies may think that 
one issue is directly linked to a species, it may not be according to cultural and religious beliefs. Timothy Smith added that indigenous ways of thinking about animals is different than how the federal government or other outside entities think about them. Smith is a biological technician for the Pueblo of Sandia. He's Muscalero Apache. You know, when when you're asking a tribe for certain information, we don't go off of a species list. All of our animals, all of our everything, life, is all connected through our traditional values, through our language everything. We don't have a T&E list, so what's important to federal agencies as far as, or even state agencies as far as, oh, is that a listed species? Or is this a listed species? Um, for instance, for a lot of tribes, mule deer, mule deer is very special to a lot of tribes and it's a part of a lot of creation stories. But that importance of, of you know, what we dance for, they're not in anybody's list. They're not on anybody's list as far as when we sit down with a federal agency and we're talking about, about you know, what species is important to you and how is it important to this tribe and what are you guys doing? And uh, I like what, what he said about, you know, some of the federal agencies need to learn to stop asking why. You know, that's, that's kind of, this is a cultural importance to us. And then, you know, maybe put, put the period there because it has significance to our stories, to our language, to you know how we bring about this and stuff. After the workshop, I tagged along on the field trip to the Santa Ana Pueblo Reservation just north of Albuquerque to catch some bats. I rode with Dr. Veldez and Dan Newbaum from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and we're on a bumpy road. Uh, and they're really distinct because they have a black body and then three white spots on their back and then really long pink ears. Huge. Yeah, really big. Um, And they also make an audible sound, which is funny because, uh, well, they sound like uh, two steel ball bearings clacking. And one time, uh, the younger you are, the better you're hearing for these lower (laughs) frequencies. But (laughs) as you get older, you start losing that range where you can hear bats. <laughs> this one species. Uh, this one species, because they make an audible call. And we were in uh, in uh, Los Alamos, and uh, we we're listening to this bat because you can hear him without a detector. And this guy that was with us, he's our kind of our mentor, and uh, we could hear, you know, young us young guys back then, we could hear this bat coming down the canyon, and he was like. And we could hear it, and it was like almost right in front of us uh, in the canyon. And he's like, shh, spotted bat. <laughs> I mean, hear it coming all the way, all the way down, down the canyon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, start, I'm starting to get to that age now oh, where I'm like, no. oh, man, I can't. When I go to mow my lawn, I'm, I have the head, the earmuffs on to protect my hearing yeah. so that I can hear spotted bats in my later years. <laughs> A group of about two dozen biologists and tribal biologists gathered around a small pond. As the sun went down and the sky changed from yellow to pink to purple, Lawrence and others set up a long net across the pond to catch bats coming out for a drink. So see, they just basically fly in and they hit the net and then they tumble down into the bagging and get stuck. And that's how you catch them. Mm. 
get a, get a bat selfie. Get a bat selfie. Oh, look how cute he is. <laughs> Each bat that we caught that night was gently untangled from the delicate net and placed into a bag and sent over to Dr. Valdez. He weighed and measured each of them. Yeah, this is the smallest bat in the U.S. and they don't weigh very much. And take them out. So this is a bat that also likes to hang out in rock crevices. Did Dan tell you that? Um, I've seen him in Boulder cracks in the boulders and stuff like that. 5.8 grams. I took a moment to speak with Taylor Silva from the Navajo Nation Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh-huh, I'm learning a lot of things. Um, I've never, I've caught birds by mist netting before, but never bats, so it's a new experience for me. Um, I never knew there were so many techniques out here, especially like sticking glue, like little um, glow sticks on the back of bats. Like I never knew that was even a, a thing till tonight. And then, um, I don't know, it's just a great... Sorry, there's a frog. <laughs> That's awesome. What is it? Let me see. It's a toad. I'm about to it's a toad. <laughs> Sorry. But it's been an all-around great um, experience to learn about because um, in our department we haven't done really much studies on bats and we really need to focus on it since there's this um, new white nose syndrome going around, this disease, and we want to protect our animals and our wildlife for our tribe. So that's why we're here, so we could be but diverse and know about our wildlife and what other um, departments are doing around us. So I think it's great that they could even do this for us for free and give us all the materials that we need to take back home. And uh, what did you learn about bats uh, from, from your elders or stories that you've heard, maybe even origin stories about bats? You know, I haven't really learned much about bats. It's just something that you respect and you leave alone. That's how we kind of view most of our wildlife is that the best conservation is that you just don't intrude, you know. Um, so we didn't really talk about it because it wasn't something that you really go seek out to bother. But now that um, they need protecting, I think it's very important that we start learning about them now, even if we didn't know that about them before. That glow stick method she mentioned was really cool to see. Uh, Roger Rodriguez, a regional bat monitoring research assistant at Oregon State University, he glued a tiny glue stick on the belly of one of the bats and he released it. And we got to see its crazy flight pattern against the black sky. And that was for a couple of moments until it disappeared. Uh, so these are bat detectors. Um, so we're, we're recording or detecting their ultrasonic uh, calls. Um, so this detector, just so bats um, produce echolocation calls that are above human hearing. Um, so what this detector does, it lowers its frequency within human range, so we can actually hear it. But it goes probably if we get closer to the pond, you can pick up a lot more. There you go. Oh, yeah. So this one will actually record the call and kind of give you a, a little kind of black and white display there. Oh, there it goes. So we're getting that. So that's more of these little bats that they're measuring right now that we're recording right now. Uh, it's um, Canyon Bat is the name. 
Does, does a canyon bat look different than other bats? Can you tell what kind of bat? Yeah, a canyon bat has a very distinctive kind of call. Um, it kind of looks like a J or like kind of almost a fish hook um, that points to the right on this frequency time graph. Um, they're very distinctive calls can, compared to what else is out here. And now we're getting a really low call. It's probably, yeah, kind of looks like a Mexican free tail probably, but... If you want to see pictures from this adventure, including a sweet photo of the bat you just heard from earlier, head on over to ToastedSisterPodcast.com. Many people I spoke to at the workshop didn't have much to share about the cultural significance of bats. Like Taylor said, they are present, and so they are respected and left alone. But I visited with Timothy Smith again, and he shared an Apache bat origin story with me. When the world was, was dark... There was animals that had already lived here in the world. They'd already had a presence here in the dark. They, they talk about snakes. You talk about bats. Those are the, the night birds. In some cultures and even in Apache cultures, it's, it's considered an upside-down bird. But um, they talk about these animals where the creator put light and dark together. Um, they talk about about how the Creator brought the day and the night to compensate both animals of the world because there's some animals that needed the light, plants that need the light. So they talk about the different species of animals and they started moving them around to night and day, night and day, night and day. When you talk about bats, bats were an important piece to the people because not only are they scientifically their pollinators, in tradition stories, they talk about how the bat went to certain areas and went way down and actually pulled the, the yucca plant out of the ground. They pulled it out. They came out, and through their, their feces, they actually got the yucca plant to grow. And the yucca plant was a beautiful, beautiful flower. It was a plant of flower. It was a plant of grace. And the bat would fly around it and pollinate its its flowers at night. When it would bloom, it would be very beautiful. The one day the bat was flying around it, and he's, he was flying around it, and he is, as he was flying around it, a storm came in, and the bat went down into the trees where it usually goes. It goes and hides in the bark, and it went down in the trees and it slid down. When the clouds came in, it was a fierce thunderstorm. But it was just thunder and lightning. They were fighting each other. And lightning came down and hit the ground. And it actually hit the yucca plant. When it hit the yucca plant, it made it what it is today. It was more cactusy, real ugly. Um, people don't realize that you can use it. So when the, bat, when the clouds cleared and the bat came out at night and he was looking for the most beautiful flower, he flying all over the place, that's kind of how they say that he can sense he sends out messages, and he's sending out messages because he's looking for that flower. He's looking for the flower. He's looking for the flower. To this day, he hasn't found it because the yucca plant was struck by lightning. voices from the Southwest Native American Workshop on Bats. It was put on by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the U.S. Geological Survey. 
Toasted Sister is supported by the Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation. Music was created for Toasted Sister by CWI Own. Check out this most excellent band on Bandcamp or visit CWIOwn.com. That's CWAYON.com. And thanks for listening. I'm Andy Murphy. Mm-hmm.